Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Mark Bell's Power Project podcast, hosted by Mark Bell, co-hosted by Nsima Eang and myself, Andrew Zaragoza. This episode was recorded on August 6th, and it is with Ivor Cummins, a.k.a. the Fat Emperor. Ivor is a biochemical engineer, and he gave us the absolute best information, just the most useful information when it comes to the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. Um, this is the episode that you're going to want to send and share with friends and family, especially those that are just... They're, they're filling the fear from the media, the fear mongering that's going on because Ivor absolutely crushed all of those fears by giving you guys facts and information and just th- this is the episode. Okay. This is the one. I don't want to waste any more time. Let's hop right into this episode. So thank you again, Ivor Cummins for spending so much time with us. And ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this episode with the fat emperor, Ivor Cummins. Yeah. COVID, COVID-19 is the new, uh, like baby. Like when you have a baby, you're like, oh, I can't cause we got a baby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't do that. Cause I, or, or new puppy, a puppy is a good one. Mm-hmm. Sorry, and Seema can't go out tonight. We got a puppy. Same thing, though. <laughs> How many times have I told you that? Yeah. <laughs> All the Same. time. Yeah, yeah that's actually point. something I want to ask you for is like, dude, okay, before, well, when, when, when everything broke, right, I wasn't really like concerned much. You know, my wife and I were both, we, you know, work out on a regular basis. We eat healthy, not really tripping. She's pregnant now. That makes you think very different. So, like, now I'm like, okay, should we be concerned? You know, like, is it more serious than, like, the flu? I I don't think it is. Or I think maybe it's on par. But if she were to get the flu, like, yeah, fuck. Like, I'd be really, like, I, you know, I'd be real concerned. So, is it going to be the same for COVID-19? Is it Ivor or Ivor? Sorry. I'm just, I'm actually curious. Oh, uh, I think it's Ivor. Ivor? Okay. Okay. <laughs> My bad. Sounds uh, menacing, though. You know, no offense, Ivor. <laughs> like Igor? Ivor, yeah, it sounds Ivor, like a villainous. Ivor. It sounds yeah. tough. We're not on air, are we? Not right now we are, yeah. Yeah. No, it just sounds tough. We're not live. <laughs> oh, okay. We're not live. Okay. Yeah. Good. So anyways, we can start all over if you want. Nah, that's okay. I don't want to say his name sounds villainous. He's a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> he might be into it. He he is a very nice guy. He like seems, if you said he my name sounded badass or like sounded like a monster. All right, like pause. It, it's Andrew. I know. So it's not like. I know. It's, yeah. It's hey, pretty... how about this? You have to fight Andrew or you have to fight Ivor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two different images come to mind. <laughs> yeah. See? Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You're welcome, Ivor. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're excited to have him on the show. I've been a big fan of his for a long time. I don't know how I stumbled upon his stuff. Um, years ago when I got into nutrition and started trying to take a deep dive into it i was like you know i should know some of these terms and i should know what i'm talking about when i talk about um nutrition and then i just realized that i'll never (laughs) that'll that'll never be me i'll never be a joel green but you know i i did learn a lot from a lot of the stuff that i uh, saw from ivor cummins he has some outstanding information just kind of scattered throughout the internet um He's been a low-carb proponent for quite some time. He had his dad uh, pass away um, a couple years back, and he just thought his dad could have a healthier uh, end to his life. His dad you know, lived into his like 70s, I think, 72 or 76 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just saw the last 10, 12 years fairly compromised, and he was just like, 
you know, there's got to be a better way. And so um, after a lot of research, he's the guy that came up with the um, he, he didn't like invent it or anything, but uh, he's the one that gave popularity to a calcium scan. And mm. I, I think that we oh, need wow. we need to talk to him about that stuff. Um, I think, you know, first we'll tackle some of the covid stuff just because it's so relevant and it's so important and I, I think that the more that we can get information out to the general public maybe you know uh maybe the public can kind of start to voice their opinion more and uh maybe can get us in a better spot i don't know how we get there but um you know i'm, I'm hoping that things will open up i'm not a big fan of a lot of the decisions that have been made um i i I don't mind playing ball either. I don't mind, you know, I'll, I'll social distance. I'll wear a mask. I'll do, you know, the various things that are, I'm not going to be an asshole about it. I'm not going to mm-hmm. be like, I'm not wearing a mask, bro. I'm mm-hmm. not going to, I'm not going to fight anybody about it. Um, at the same time, I just don't think, I don't, I just don't, I don't think the combination of things that we have going on are effective. You know, it's like, hey, you know, do A, B, and C, but then you're also allowed to do uh, these other things, and it just doesn't seem—it doesn't seem like it's effective at all. And from the very beginning, we've had some people on the show um, who said, like, a government is not going to stop a virus. You know, mm-hmm. how how dare you think that? Almost, you know, I, I think that that uh, is an important thing. And I know some people are like, well, you could slow it down, and but. Uh, you know, slowing it down brings up a lot of other questions. You know, if we keep this thing around for a longer time, does it have more of an opportunity to mutate and turn into something different? Possibly. You know, so uh, anyway, we'll get a lot of great answers from uh, Ivor today. Mm-hmm. I um just switching gears for a second. Uh, I started crushing um, flat iron steaks again from Piedmontese. No, you didn't. Dude, they're so good. So... I, okay, if you follow the podcast and maybe even my Instagram, then you'll see that I've been cooking my face off on my smoker, but I haven't been using the uh, the flat iron steaks until I moved into this new place. Mm-hmm. Dude, It. I mean, when it comes to like macro-friendly like meals or whatever, this has 90 grams of protein and only 8 grams of fat for this mm-hmm. like, I think it's only like 6 ounces. Mm-hmm. So like yesterday when I'm tracking stuff, I'm looking, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so like far behind on my protein. Like what the hell am I going to do? But I didn't see it had like the, the negative. Dramatic comeback right there. Well, no, the thing is like <laughs> it had the negative in front of the number. So I'm like, oh shit, I'm way over. Like yeah. sick. All right, this is dope. So, and they cook extremely fast. They taste amazing. I gave one to my father-in-law the other day. I thought he like broke a tooth on a, on a you know fork or something because he's like oh and uh he was just like this tastes incredible it was it's it's my favorite thing to eat right now it's good for you too because you're like low fat right now yeah so mm-hmm. you can still make red meat fit which is nice yeah yeah bodybuilding steaks who would ever thought it yeah that and then of course the bavette steak which i think is the ultimate diet steak because it has 100 grams of protein and i think it's kind of the same amount of fat but it's like the size of uh I don't know, football. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a big old square. Yeah. How about you, Mark? Yeah, I've been uh, eating those uh, Bavette steaks mm-hmm. like they're going out of style. I've been eating a lot more lately, trying to eat more protein just to kind of see. I just wanted to kind of test out the upper limits of uh, <laughs> of uh, this uh, protein leveraging idea. So I've been really like morning and night like fucking pounding food (laughs) it's actually been kind of hard just because i'm not used to it like i'm used to you know i got used to fasting and um i got used to uh 
I don't know, I got used to just eating the way I was eating. I, I kind of would set up every night, I would set up like a what I call a double dinner. I would eat at like four, and then I'd eat again at like seven. And because the time between the two wasn't that far, um, you know, I was able to eat a good amount of food, but it, it kept me, you know, in, in mm-hmm. check pretty good. But this seems to be working a lot more effectively, even just after doing it for just a handful of days so far. But protein's up to 400 grams a day. So <laughs> I got to keep, I got to keep like, you know, looking in the freezer. I'm like, damn, I got to thaw out more steak. I keep forgetting. I'm like, oh shit. So you are eating literally all who's, day. Who's eating all this meat? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Steak and eggs. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on steak and eggs. So <sighs> I'm trying to pull it up. So yesterday I had 200. I know what you're thinking. Where do I put it all? <laughs> well, two- you have gotten bigger. <laughs> so I had 270 mm. grams of protein yesterday and it didn't feel like it. Like wow. I, I, I didn't feel like terrible. And That's a good. majority of that is because of that flat iron steak. I talked to, uh, I talked to our boy Ron Penna yesterday Uh-oh. and, uh, he was, because I was telling him, I was like, yeah, it's been kind of hard. He's like, you think it's hard? You know, <laughs> he just, he's like, you think it's difficult? He's like, ah, it's, it's, he's like, it's not. He's like, maybe because I've been doing it for 20 years. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Every day. Never yeah. missed. How much protein did he say he's been eating? He does like double body weight in protein almost every day. Wow. Never misses a day. He looks ridiculous. I, I had him he's on like a, a Zoom call. He's jacked as hell. He looks amazing. I was like, I mean, he always looks great. Yeah. I don't know. I hate the guy. <laughs> he's, he's the closest person that we know uh, to Batman. You know, he's just, mm-hmm. he's like Batman. Were you Batman or Tony Stark? <laughs> oh, yeah. Ah, Batman, Batman. Yeah. yeah I'd say Elon Batman. Musk would be like a Tony Stark. Right. I actually think that together, Ron though. Penna is 100% Elon Musk. Because, like, Elon Musk doesn't really care about owning, like, a car company, although he Mm. takes a lot of pride in Tesla. But Tesla was, like, a testing ground for batteries. Ron Mm. Penna had Quest Nutrition for God knows what reason, (laughs) because he would bring people in, fly people in throughout, from all over the country. Um, Carl was telling me the other day that um, they ran a test on people to see if light... Um, not even just on your eyes, but light on your body. If light on your body during sleep uh, affected your sleep, and it and it did, <laughs> it negatively, in a good way? negatively impacted your sleep a little oh, bit. So okay, yeah, okay. I uh, think I think it starts to wake you up. Mm, that makes sense. You know, like yeah. hey, it's time to get up, even when you're think you're out cold. But- does make sense uh but backtracking a little bit for more information on piedmontese please head over to piedmontese.com that's p-i-e-d-m-o-n-t-e-s-e.com at checkout enter promo code power project for 25 percent off your order and if your order is 99 dollars or more you get free two-day shipping and you won't slash hiccup burp like i just did yeah how do you spell <laughs> yeah i know uh, yes. You just uh, t- talk into talk into your phone id dash one nine are you wearing a mask? Uh, yeah, but mm. bro, this room's not that big. <laughs> I, I wore a mask walking in, and then since I got in, and you guys, you guys got uh, your testing done, right? Like you, you didn't test positive. Positive. Oh, all right. Well, I guess I have it. He's positive that he's got it. <laughs> positive that I don't have it. That, that was the. Oh, okay. sh- there we go. All right. And we're, we're gonna ask uh, <laughs> Ivor about uh, the testing and stuff too, which seems to be. An even larger clusterfuck. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's um, there's a lot of different types of tests as well. So, um, but I think they just cause confusion. You know, when we had swine flu around, 
for whatever reason, <laughs> nobody cared. Uh, didn't seem like, uh, just didn't seem like there was the hysteria around it. People still got very sick. People unfortunately died from it. So I don't want to make it out to be like it was nothing, but, um, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't know where this one caught ground. I don't know. I, it doesn't, it just, I don't know. It's hard to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, I, I don't know how it, <laughs> how it gained the footing that it has, but uh, maybe it's just due to our times, you know, the social media era and things like that. I think that's the biggest thing. And then it's spread pretty quick. But then also I think it, it it's because of the origin story. Chinese lab doctor yeah, right. dies of mm. mysterious virus why that do, spreads. Like, as America, why do we always buy that? <laughs> like, does Nigeria have stuff like that going on where they got like, you know, like if you mention another country, it's like this ominous battle. Mm. <laughs> you know, because we had like when I was growing up, it was Russia. Mm-hmm. And I still think like Russia or Russian stuff is like, you know, scary. Like, oh, yeah. man, you know, that guy's Russian. I <laughs> I don't know why. It's just, you know. Yeah. We kind of have that with rice. <laughs> For all you Ghanaians listening, the jollof rice sucks. And like there's. Oh, like, yeah. You yeah. Know, when you hear about me. Nigerian versus Ghanaian jollof. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't want to change the subject backtracking <laughs> let's go back to what's important here uh but yeah no i, I just like i remember like saddam hussein like that was like a big scare type mm. of thing and then uh of course um bin laden when i that was when i was in high school so you know bush was talking about having like a draft and i remember just like all my like shitty loser friends <laughs> were just like well i'm not gonna worry about school because i'm about to get drafted like i don't think that's how it works but me too <laughs> here we go yeah, Bin Laden, he had Mario Kart on his computer. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Hello? Hey, Hi. how's it going, Ivor? <laughs> how you doing, guys? Doing well. Uh, we're doing amazing. We have to first start out with how did the name the Fat Emperor come to be? Because that is an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing moniker. <laughs> well, it works for me, but uh, it's a few years ago. In 2012, I got into health and biochemistry research, metabolic health. And I realized over a while when I discovered that cholesterol thing was all crap and the fat was not bad, I realized that the corporates had kind of driven bad science. They didn't create the mistaken belief, but they certainly funded to keep it alive for decades. So it occurred to me the fat emperor was kind of a metaphor on three levels. So first there was the emperor's new clothes. You know, we were all fooled and the researchers who knew there was something wrong said nothing. They didn't call it. And then you have the emperor being corporate power that funded it to maintain it. And then finally, the kind of fat emperor, the poor diabetic, obese person, (laughs) insulin dependent, who was kind of a lot of them were fooled into ending up like that. So there's kind of three levels to it. (laughs) It seems like we're being fooled uh, pretty uh, on a pretty large scale right now. How did you get into researching COVID-19 and like I, I've been following a lot of your stuff. I've been a fan for a long time, been following a lot of the stuff that you share about heart disease and, and uh, uh, insulin resistance over the years. But uh, how did you kind of end up morphing into diving into the coronavirus? Yeah, well, Mark, it was it was kind of like it came along in March and I was a bit interested, but I'd seen the Chinese data And I even began to see the Italian data and, you know, it was average age 81 and 98.5% had comorbidities. And I kind of thought, okay, this is going to be like a tough flu, but it's, it's not going to like, it's not like a massive epidemic thing. And then as things began to shut down, I thought, whoa, I thought, I thought it was an overreaction. 
And then lockdowns came in. And then in Ireland in April, they decided not to lift the lockdown, even though the curve had turned, the hospitals were emptying out. And clearly it was going through a flu-like seasonal pattern. And I thought, well, great. They can pull the lockdown. It was okay to do one, even though I didn't believe scientifically in it. But then they refused to take it out and they put in a four-month plan. Then I knew, wow, what's going on here? And I began to research deeply into virology, epidemiology, and all aspects related to it. I began to interview people who were experts. And yeah, we have a load of experts around the world now in all disciplines who would agree with the view I take, as it happens, uh, but they're not listened to. So it seems the WHO and specific epidemiologists and experts or the SAGE committee in the UK, they have the conch and they are directing mega fear. And even as this thing ended in Europe and America kind of tailed off, though the South of America is a different seasonal regional area. It's kind of more tropical like Mexico. So there was a hump there, sadly, but it all fits with the data. But there's this fear of second wave now. And there's just constant fear and measures that no longer make any sense. So it kept me on it. Let's talk about that second wave for a second, because I've heard you say that uh, you don't believe there could be a second wave without a second virus uh, flying around. So um, what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, a second wave in the true sense, and the word is being bandied about like a weapon, um, a, re a seasonal resurgence in the winter uh, makes sense, and that's scientific uh, and might even be expected. But if it seasonally resurges in the winter, you'll have the advantage. Well, it's not an advantage, but in countries that were hit pretty solidly, they'll have community immunity. And mostly the people who will be hit in the winter will be the people who become susceptible, more aged, more infirm, more ill. So it'll tend to be a smaller number, but it'll happen. But that's a seasonal resurgence of an endemic virus. That's not a second wave. They mean a second wave that unseasonally will explode because the virus starts being allowed to spread again. And that makes no scientific sense. It makes so the only real precedent for that, and they're harking back to it, is the 1918 Spanish flu. Mm. But I've read pretty extensively on that. And the matter is not fully closed because they don't have the actual analysis of the viruses. But the early wave impacted... And the second wave that hit really hard was a different demographic completely. It was unseasonal. And the consensus is it was a different virus, either an 1870s flu virus that had come back. Hence, it didn't hit the older people. It hit younger uh, or a major mutation of the influenza of early 2018 that came back from Europe is a possibility. But influenzas mutate much more easily than coronavirus. So there's no reason to expect a major mutation within months. Uh, it doesn't make sense. So again, you would say scientifically, second wave if a second virus comes along. But that's not what they're saying. They are saying that this thing is controlled and it could break out of control. But the reality is in all across Europe and Northeast America and the South now, I think, is turning its curve. Once you're through your curve and you're on the downslope, we've seen all over the world, then you can't suddenly have the same virus pop up again. 
because it's been through its cycle. And sadly, you know, a lot of people have expired, but it makes no scientific sense to me or the professors of immunology I've interviewed. But sadly, they say that their colleagues should know this, but they've admitted uh, secretly that they can't say it because the world has a message and they've got careers. So he's calling his colleagues and students immunity deniers, <laughs> which is a clever phrase. But, but this Professor Beda Stadler, who's the Fauci of Switzerland, <laughs> they call him the uh, vaccine pope. I mean, he's pro-vaccine, immunology professor, director of the Institute in Switzerland. And he said all this to me. Yeah, that doesn't make no sense. But he says, no one can say that because there is a narrative. It's coming from the top. It's powerful. And they've got careers. But he said, I'm retired, so I can actually tell the truth. Are you seeing anybody in any government kind of speaking outward against this? I I did hear you say that, uh, uh, or a guest that you had on your show, rather, he said that Italy came out and kind of apologized for the way they handled it. Have we seen other countries have government officials? Is there anybody here in the United States? I mean, you know, you seem like you get pretty condemned even uh, just saying anything about a mask here in the U.S. So are you seeing anybody in any government speaking outwardly against how things are being handled? It's relatively rare, Mark. So, um, and yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, I could say psychosis, but certainly paranoia, fear, mass delusion, mass panic. That's going on and it's infected everybody. So sweet. Oh. <laughs> That's YouTube being like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap, for reals. Well, oh, there you go. I, I think it was an auto shutdown. They say the, power, the powers that be <laughs> shut us <Yes>. down. <laughs> they've got me. <laughs> hey, I had a good run since March for three months, but now they got me. So uh, no, so the Swedish government said from the start that we lockdowns are not scientific. They've also essentially said masks are not scientific, and they said we are going to follow the science. And we will take further actions as required, which is a scientific person's way of approaching it. So they have an epidemiologist, uh, Guy Seca, and Anders Tegnell is their state epidemiologist. And their whole department in Sweden, the government is not really allowed the politicians to make these decisions. They must defer to the experts. And the Swedish experts said, we've looked at the science. There is no science supporting lockdowns in a scenario like this. Um, distancing, yes, hand-washing masks. If you've got symptoms, stay at home, limit the big crowds to 50 and keep the economy ticking over and we're going to monitor closely. And they were correct. So they ended up with the same approximate deaths per million as Ireland and England who had big lockdowns Mm. and now masks, uh, but with no lockdown and no mask. Uh, So they've been proven correct. So the media around the world keep attacking Sweden the last three months. And I just look and it's insane. Sweden never got within 70% of their intensive care capacity. They had loads of headroom. There were impromptu hospitals they set up that were never used. They're now taking them down. And, um, you know, they just, they just did it scientifically. And I don't think hardly anyone extra died than would have died anyway if they had done a sham of a lockdown. So that's a good example of a country. Their ICU now for 10 and a half million people is down to less than 40 beds for Corona. 
out of 10 and a half million people and their debts have gone to pretty much zero. And they say we will continue to apply the science. It's gone very well. We could have protected the care homes better because they got 70% plus in care homes and they thought they could protect them and they didn't actually succeed. So they say that's the only place we actually went wrong and we learned from it. Uh, But that's it. And then more extreme examples are Belarus in Eastern Europe. And their president said, I'm not doing a lockdown. This was in March. Mm. And he brought all of his staff and army into a huge gymnasium, shoulder to shoulder, (laughs) you know. And this is when the epidemic was starting. No masks, no nothing. And he told them in in a lecture that he had looked at the data. He didn't believe it. And he said, we are not going to react in a psychotic way. And pretty much we're going to follow the science. And if things develop negatively, we'll take more measures. And Belarus have one of the lowest death rates now in Europe with no lockdown. And we have five published papers in institutes, America Woods Hole Institute, Oxford University. We have a German university of professors of mathematics there and other and Israel. Multiple published papers showing mathematically with no real question that the lockdowns did not connect to any major benefit in all countries across Europe and the world, including in America. So we have the answer about lockdowns, but no one wants to hear it now. You know, it's very embarrassing. It's caused huge destruction. To admit that it didn't do anything over safe distancing, smart distancing, is unthinkable. So it looks like, you know, the, the wagons are circled. The lockdown did magical works, and now we need to do more stuff if we're taking away the lockdown to prevent this spread, which makes no scientific sense in the summer in countries that have collapsed, the epidemic's over. You should be allowing a certain amount of safe transmission during the summer when the mortality is on the floor and have more community immunity built up before the winter where some people will be challenged. That's it. You know, when we pay attention to, to Sweden and Belarus, a lot of people would wonder, uh, well, did they do so well because of like their population density, et cetera? Because when you look at places like here in California, right, there was we I think we got rid of the lockdown like a month and a half ago or two months ago. Uh, apparently, we also had more testing. So the numbers kind of went up. And then we lock down again and people are saying, oh, we should have just kept the lockdown. If we kept the lockdown, the numbers wouldn't have spiked. So when we're looking at that, what how should people look at that? Because people are now saying, oh, it's because we stopped locking down that we're not having more more cases and more deaths. Yeah. So the first thing there is cases are useful in the rise of a real epidemic where where deaths are rising. You know, cases help you predict and control what's going on. But when a thing is plateaued, like a flu-like illness is is in its flattened curve or a Gumpert's curve where it's coming down, and Northern Europe is like that and Northern America, you see a rapid rise, community immunity kicked in, the susceptible now are sadly deceased, and you see a long, slow collapse. Once you're in the collapse, cases become almost useless. You know, because you're past the peak, you're coming down. What you can do during that period, unfortunately, is create a case-demic, I call it, and get people now, when the debts are gone and the epidemic has faded or the debts are very low, 
um, and the problem is effectively faded, you can start pe- hysteria around a case demic. So you can do more testing and you'll get more cases and the graphs look terrible. Or you can even see more cases, but the mortality is not really spiking. So it doesn't really mean much. And we saw this in the 2009 swine flu, that after the mortality had faded, there were certain elements in society that wanted to panic and there was hyper testing going on. And I have a graph I can send later and it shows in the summer an enormous peak of positive cases. And they were all newspaper articles panicking, but the deaths were not there. So coronaviruses are seasonal, but you will find coronaviruses throughout the summer if you keep testing. And you'll find even more in the winter. But the million dollar question is, do you have an epidemic level of mortality and intensive care? And if the answer is no, our mortality is only 50 per million average or one or two per million per day. Like recently, Florida was a couple per million people per day. That's not an epidemic. doesn't matter how many cases you have. Are we seeing an epidemic impactful scenario? So I, I don't know if I explained that right, but you've got to look at the death rates. Now, I know they lag from the testing. That's true. So if your cases shoot up in a real epidemic, it will be followed by death. But if you've plateaued or are falling, cases rising in younger people often are not really followed by much of a mortality impact. And you've got to stand back and say, how big an impact is this really? And that's where I think California, because of the hysteria, the massive testing, everything's gotten blurred, you know? I've heard you uh, say that, you know, multiple times that you don't feel lockdowns have really done. Oh, you're still there? <laughs> we'll have <them> again. <clears throat> he should come back. Hopefully. Technical difficulties. Okay. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. Hello? We can hear you. Yeah. We can hear you. Yeah, we just Could can't you hear see my you. audio when the screen was gone? We have your audio right now and we can't see you at the moment, but uh I think we'll just continue onward. Yeah. I think we're we're I think we're good to go. Oh there yeah, you go. Yeah, we'll we'll roll on and I might look at it in a moment. <laughs> yeah, um I was gonna ask um you know with your background being in uh comorbidities uh ins- you know insulin resistance slash uh pre-diabetes diabetes how does that play into it um because i i feel like the media is trying to scare us with that too if somebody you know is 30 40 pounds overweight if someone's obese um i think that that they're being kind of uh, shamed at the moment. And some people that have some of these comorbidities, are they really at much greater risk? Are those the risks uh, that are connected to um, deaths when it comes to coronavirus? Do we know that yet? Yeah, I'd say very much so, Mark. So even at the earliest stage from China, we, we were getting the data and I was looking at it back in February and you had around 10 times the risk for being aged understandably, uh, but also for having hypertension, uh, COPD, uh, diabetic dysfunction, coronary vascular disease. And all four of those are basically all tied up in a ball. They're all insulin resistance, leptin resistance. So I kind of looked and said, okay, that makes sense because insulin sensitivity enhances the immune system, makes it ancestrally powerful. And insulin resistance states really hit your immune system in a really bad way because They make one part of your immune system that you want very active, less active, 
And then they make the cytokine storm overreact, which is what kills a lot of people. So I interviewed Dr. Ron Rosedale, who was the doctor 25, 30 years ago, who discovered the importance of insulin and leptin. He's an absolute expert. And we had a podcast on it. And he went through exactly that, that leptin is not just a hormone released by fat cells. It works in the brain. It signals in myriad ways. And it's also a cytokine and intimately involved in immune system response, you know, along with IL-6 and other things. And he basically said, when you are leptin resistant, your immune system is greatly impaired. So what we're seeing is, I would say there's a massively higher risk if you are leptin resistant with high leptin, low adiponectin, high insulin, any of these measures, which they're not measuring, by the way, of course, as you know. But if you measure them, you'd find that's where a massive amount of the risk of poor outcomes is. And vitamin D is another good one, not just as a supplement, but vitamin D status is an excellent marker of insulin sensitivity and metabolic health. And we've seen multiple studies now showing that people below 20 nanograms, as opposed to above 30 nanograms per mil, they have around 10 times the death and poor outcome, you know, if you're below 20. And again, that makes sense because below 20, you're metabolically in poor shape and above 30, you're in ancestral level. But it's just interesting. There's a 10 times difference. So if you imagine you take someone with a vitamin D of 17 nanograms, insulin resistance, high leptin, you know, visceral fat, (laughs) your average person these days, unfortunately, in America. And if you took that person and over a few weeks, crash course, you know, interval training, uh, low carb or keto diet, fasting, magnesium, potassium, and getting sun exposure, healthy sun, and a few more things, and you put them on a rigorous program, in a few weeks, their risk could go down by a a factor. I mean, a factor of three, four, five, if they got infected with the same dose. So there's this huge lever of what actually enables severity from this disease, and no one's talking about it, as you well know, around the world. Uh, They're all talking about lockdowns, which in contrast have been proven in multiple published papers to be almost ineffective. So it's a topsy-turvy world, and this is what drew me in back in April. What's going on is essentially anti-scientific, and it's, it's hard to understand that the whole world can pursue unscientific approaches and completely ignore what's apparent, well, at least apparent to me and all my doctors and people around the world, Um, And that's where we are. And, you know, I'll just throw in one thing that drove me crazy a couple of weeks ago. Ireland's finished the epidemic. In winter, we may have more susceptible people, sadly, but we're finished. And they took down the lockdown slowly. And then suddenly in June, July, I think it was July, suddenly they said we're going to mandate masks on public transport by law with a prison sentence (laughs) and a two and a half thousand dollar fine. Wow. And I just could not believe what I was seeing. We've passed the epidemic. We're out of it. The science is clear, pretty much. And you're bringing in mandatory masks now. And a week or two later, they brought in mandatory masks in stores. And it's like, I honestly, I'm speechless. (laughs) And I talked to that professor of immunology and he just shook his head. He said, you're as well off 
wearing a helmet walking down the street in Switzerland now, which is like Ireland, because there's more chance of something falling on your head <laughs> than the mask giving you any benefit. You know, and this is a top professor. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure where they're going with this, because if you bring in a mask mandatory at the end of an epidemic, when exactly do you take it back out? <laughs> I mean, what's the exit strategy, you know? Do you feel that masks are, are effective uh, in any way, even like if, if we're in the middle of an epidemic? Well, I, I proposed masks as an alternative to lockdown back in March. I said, why don't we just wear masks, wash hands. If you're symptomatic, stay at home and do the usual world standard bad flu guidelines, which don't include masks, by the way. Mm. Up until 2019, they said no masks because 30 years of science generally showed that they were very ineffective for viral problems. Um, now, they were useful to stop spittle from a surgeon's mouth and hair and pieces of skin dropping down into a wound. A little bit more bacterial, bacterial more bacterial than yeah. viral, right? Absolutely. And, and only with the proviso that after use, you destroy the mask, obviously, because you're going to have bacteria and all, all over it. Um, but now we've got reusable masks for viruses. And I, I could not believe when that came out, because even in America, where the South, in fairness, let's say we make an exception and we say, well, the South is on a Mexico seasonal pattern rising slowly through April, May, June, July, August. But the Northeast uh, and to a, the Midwest, to a large extent, are the European pattern. And they went up in March and down in April and went down to nothing. I mean, what, what on earth will a mask do there? It's like Ireland or Switzerland or Sweden. You know, you've kind of gone through your curve. I mean, this is the same as prior flu-like illnesses in that regard. And once you're past the epidemic in your region season, then really, there's nothing really to do but just keep washing your hands and and get ready to protect the new susceptible in the winter. And you can do that because we just said, you know, you can go to a nutrient-dense diet, meat, fish, eggs, pull out the sugars and carbohydrates, get those older, sicker people insulin-sensitive, and you're going to make a huge impact on next winter. But they don't want to do that. Uh they want to just keep doing lockdown stuff. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just getting frustrated talking about it. <laughs> uh, I remember uh, hearing rumors about people being able to contract the virus twice. Is there any truth to any of that? Able to contract the virus by. Uh, so I just remember rumors like early on about um, like hearing reports of people uh, contract contracting the virus twice uh i think that's part, oh. that's part of why like the uh the, the second wave uh you know fear mongering's uh going on so is there any truth to that well scientifically no <laughs> <laughs> so you can say anything you can say when when the moon is in a certain phase the virus will get stronger and many of us will die uh and I can't prove that that's untrue. <laughs> but the fact is now six or seven months, in fact, it's been out since November. It's in the sewage in uh, Italy and in Brazil since November, maybe before. And uh, we've been through the cycle in many countries. And there isn't a single credible instance of catching it a second time in that six months. So the reality is that 
In Sweden, they made the same point recently, and they made the point many times over the last few months. They have been monitoring extremely closely. There is not a single instance of reacquiring it. And that's why their immunology people in their team, they're saying, no, this is like a classic virus, which, to be honest, you should expect that it is. And the immunity gained post an event is pretty solid. So they're really only thinking about next winter now, uh, like I said. So this catching it again appears to be a tool of <laughs> kind of quasi-terrorism. And uh, the second wave seems to be a tool. A lot of these things, I think, are not impossible, but they make no sense to be pushing to the public. A proper crisis manager, like, like the Swedes, or let's say we had FDR back again or something, mm -hmm. right? You know, or war, a real war president. They would run this, you know, with a stiff upper lip, use the best of the science, um, take a balance between risk and keeping our society freedoms and, and our economy alive and be ready to take action if the very unlikely happened. If you actually truly began to see a resurgence of mortality uh, that's very clear. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I was a crisis manager in many, many hundred million dollar issues when I was in my engineering world. And they were a big deal. They didn't involve people's lives, of course, but they were massive amounts of money. And you got to be real cool headed. And this is killing me, this thing in the last three months, because only the Swedes really are running it with a cool head. And I guess Belarus and a lot of countries in Europe now, actually, in fairness to them, uh, like in Belgium and others, they've had death rates per million up at around seven or 800, which is double Ireland and higher than Sweden and the UK. Uh, but they are there now, basically, back to business, because the Belgian experts kind of see it the way I see it. We've been through the epidemic, and it's kind of back to the old normal now, unless something unusual happens you know it's monitor and get people back to normal for 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 obvious reasons so i am curious about this because nowadays when you hear an individual that's speaking against corona on the news talk about it and compare it to the flu people are now saying this is nothing like the flu obviously it spreads easier but if we do like if we do take comorbidities out of the equation, not, not all of them like old age, but individuals being obese, etc. Um, there is a narrative that's also going around that, oh, it is killing more young people now, which you don't see, or at least I don't, I don't see as actually being true. So is there any comparison here to the flu or is it something that is totally different and we shouldn't be comparing it to the flu? Ah, no, that's a great question. All right. I would say that it's comparable to in a bad influenza in nearly every uh, way that matters. So essentially, you would look from the all-cause mortality across the whole of Europe, 400 million people, we have got the excess mortality related to this for 2020. And it's around 175,000 excess mortality over the 400 million. And 2018, the figure was 140,000, right? It was a tough flu season. And the year 2000 was higher again. We're not sure, but it's over 200. 
So it's comparable in impact to a very bad flu season. However, it's a shorter, sharper season. Usually a bad flu season with, say, 140,000 excess deaths in Europe would be over four or five months. But this happened in a few weeks, hence the overloading of the hospitals. So there was a long, low flu season for the last year and a half in Europe. And there was very little extra mortality. So a lot of susceptible people built up. And then right through 19, 2020, January, February, March, there was very little flu action. And then suddenly Corona appeared and it obviously caused a major impact. But in impact from a bird's eye view, it's, it's like a bad flu season. In seasonality that I described already, like Brazil, Peru, Mexico, southern USA versus northern USA, northern Europe, uh, it's very like the flu. In transmission, it's broadly like the flu, maybe a higher transmission, but not out of this world. So I think it's perfectly fair to compare it to a flu, but not say it's just like any old normal flu because it's more severe in impact. So I presume when people say you can't compare it to a flu, unless they're clueless, they just mean this has hit harder than the average generic flu. But it's certainly not as bad as the 57 flu or 68 or even 2000 hmm. in the numbers. So, yeah, I'd say it's a flu-like illness. Corona follows a similar seasonal pattern. It Usually coronaviruses have very low impact. This one has a high impact. But in some ways, that makes it more like the flu than a normal corona. And the other thing is that the coronaviruses, talking to the professor of immunology, though I have around five or six published papers on this now, it has a lot of commonality with previous coronaviruses. So the reason that an infected person in these studies where they track them with the people who were living in the house with them while they were symptomatic, no masks, and maybe three or four out of five people intimately with them don't get it, You've got 70% of people from the get-go who are not really going to experience anything. And the reason is cross-immunity. They've got mucosal antibodies. They've got T-cell immunity. They have all of this machinery of our immune system that's been poked and primed by previous coronaviruses over the decades. So they actually, the coronavirus is a new virus, but as Professor Stadler says, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's new because every virus, when it first comes out, is technically new. But huge amounts of its proteins and peptides and structures uh, have commonality with prior coronaviruses. And that's why it does not hit the population as a truly new disease with no immunity. We've got around 70% immunity from the get-go. And then the remaining 20 to 30%, some of them sadly die. A lot of them get severe problems. And the rest of them then to develop new immunity to the new aspects of this new coronavirus. So since it is so similar to a very bad flu or a, a bad flu, like you said, um, my wife is pregnant and we would be taking all precautions necessary when it, you know, when flu season comes around, because she will still be pregnant when our uh, normal traditional flu season comes around. But should we be taking any, uh, like extra precautions because she is pregnant when it comes to trying to avoid uh, coronavirus? Well, yeah, that's a, an interesting one. Uh, and again, Prof Stadler brought it out. 
uh, specifically, this pretty much doesn't affect young children, younger people or pregnant women Mm. at all. And he said people should kind of be celebrating that because a bad flu does. So the good thing so far from the data is it's aged or people with significant metabolic disease, even if it's undiagnosed. Uh, Early on, I saw to my astonishment in early April, I think there was a big article, pregnant women in New York, a large number, they randomly tested them and 16% were full positive in the PCR and they were pretty much all asymptomatic, right? So there's not a single thing I've heard and, and various profs have said, yeah, it's not affecting pregnant women or younger people, which a bad flu actually does. So from the data, I'd say less worry about this. And I continue to maybe have some concern if a bad flu came along. Would there maybe be some concern over blood sugar? Because I know that sometimes that can be an issue for women that are pregnant. They could become like pre-diabetic. Would that be something to keep an eye on? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's that kind of uh, um, diabetes effect. Yeah, there's two states in humankind where insulin rises and you become pro-diabetic, and that's teenage, adolescence, and pregnancy. And there's reasons for that. I'd say, yes, it would make a lot of sense uh, to avoid that scenario, that gestational diabetes type scenario, if at all possible, because that will increase susceptibility. That said, though, the data so far from America, where you're going to have a lot of that, if we're fair about it, uh, still says pregnant women are not being affected in spite of that. But yes, if you want to be really careful, the best thing you can do Insulin down, blood glucose down, diabetic physiology lowered. Uh, that's where safety lies. So, know, um, yeah. So then we solved it. If you want to be immune from coronavirus, just get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Do we also know yeah. why they're not affected? <laughs> like, well, their immune- immunity goes up. I'd imagine when you're pregnant, you produce yeah. all kinds of hormones, right? Yeah, there may be that effect. And also the pregnant women, maybe there's an age factor too that, you know, this is very age targeted, the corona and below like 50. And when you're heading below your mid 40s, the risk really tumbles to the floor. And, you know, most pregnant women are going to be down that age. So there might be a bit of confounding with age, but because the flu, a bad flu doesn't respect age so much, uh, it can hit pregnant women, even if they're young. And of course, it can hit children and infants. And it does. So Professor John Anadus from Stanford, uh, one of the most cited scientists in the world, brilliant man, he got in a bit of trouble for pointing these things out, <laughs> pointing out the immunity is much greater than we thought. The act- no. Oh, we lost you again, if you can hear us. There we go. <clears throat> right. We got gotcha. you. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think it's your fault. Hundred percent. That's what I say. I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, but this one's on me. It's always America's fault. Uh, yeah. We're used I'm to not it. Sure, but <laughs> I suspect, and I, I don't want to say it. I bet you it won't happen again. Now, I, that's just my instinct. And gone. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, there'll be no second wave of this shit. Right. <laughs> okay. Can you uh, walk so, us? 
Can you walk us through um, some of the complications of testing? Um, because, you know, they so that we see that the cases are rising, but are the cases really rising? Um, I don't even know if you would have knowledge as to uh, what's the most common form of testing, how accurate that is, and if someone is concerned, what test they should try to go get. <laughs> Yeah, so the various tests, uh, I, there's quite a few different versions, but they're all the PCR kind of uh, genetic multiplication. And what they do is they find, if imagine a virus that's got tons of proteins and peptides, all kinds of structures. Well, what the tests are doing is finding just one or some tests, two, or the best tests, three different pieces of protein that are associated with SARS-CoV-2. And there is some talk about cross-reactivity. They could pick up a positive from a, another coronavirus, though they've tried to make the better tests uh, not do that. But I'd say the main problem I would see, and I verified this with, with Prof Stadler, is that the specificity, are, they are quite high that 99% of the time, if it's positive, it's very likely is SARS-CoV-2. And it sounds good that only 1% of the time, it'll give you a false positive. And that sounds great. You say 99% and all the politicians and all the epidemiologists say it's 99%. It's amazing. <laughs> Problem is you test a thousand people, you can get 10 cases that don't exist, but you get 10 cases. So when you're in low levels of cases and high level of testing, 99% is useless. So in Ireland, I think in the last while, there was a figure we did 20,000 tests and we got like, I don't know, around 25 cases. So they could all be false. They mm -hmm. probably are false. It's meaningless. So that's the big problem is the specificity that if you're doing a lot of testing at the end of an epidemic where you're not really seeing any much death and not much going on, you're going to get a ton of false positives. Maybe a big chunk of your actual case graph is false positives from the test. So that's shocking. The other massive problem is Korea discovered this and they published in April. So in March, Korea said, you can get reinfected. We have 250 people and they had it. They recovered and they tested positive again. And everyone was, that's where a lot of this reinfection BS came from. So everyone was, oh my God, like hundreds of people and, you know, this is big numbers. And then Korea came out with an announcement and an apology to the world, but not many people covered it. And they basically said, we've just discovered that those uh, reinfections, it was actually dead fragments of virus. And they discovered that you can get the PCR positive a couple of months after someone's had the disease and they're clear. So they said the half-life of the cells being gotten rid of and the viral fragments is a couple of months, maybe three months. So now you've got a load of positive tests that are just people who had it and they're now okay. So if you add that to the specificity, you got this huge blur of noise from your test results, you're over testing and your mortality is leveled and is falling and you've got a case demic, like I mentioned before. And that's a disaster because it keeps the fear alive, the confusion, you know, and it's not based on good measurement and good data. Um, but no one seems to really care too much. They actually don't seem too worried about what I just said. They must have an idea of it. it they just don't seem too worried. I think they're, everyone in power just seems to be happy to hyper test, put a thousand 
million watt arc light onto this thing like we never did for influenza. And when it begins to go away and wanes like an influenza season, they seem to turn up the wattage higher and do more tests. Like, that's I can't understand it. Do you think some of that comes from uh, Fauci? Well, you know, there's no question. I mean, because Fauci has gone on the record and most of what he says is uh, is fueling uh, fear. So, yeah, I mean, it's coming from Fauci. It's coming from the WHO. The WHO basically got onto all the countries in Europe after the epidemic waned in Europe. And it's truly on the floor. And even Sweden with no lockdown is on the floor. And it's happy days, to be honest. And the WHO moved in and said to all the countries, you need to get masks in, mandatory masks. So you're saying, okay, what is the WHO thinking? All along, they said masks are not really any use. And now when it's kind of ended until next winter, they're telling all the countries to use masks. So I'd say the WHO, the likes of Fauci, uh, the Imperial College London that came out with the predictions of death that threw everyone into a panic, uh, and Neil Ferguson there, they were out by a factor of 10 to 12 in their estimates, and you Whoa. can see that from the Chinese data. Um, the IHME, I think, in America came out with massive predictions. So there's all these organizations and top people who are extremely influential, the top influencers, and they're all coming out with the same kind of thing. So basically, everything they're saying, no matter what happens, as the curves come down, things get better, it's looking more like a seasonal flu that's over, increasingly they come out with more and more fear. So if more youth are getting it, right, and the mortality drops because it's young people now and it's almost safe infection, they say, oh, the youth are getting it and they're going to kill the old people and there's more infection now in the youth and it's spreading like wildfire. But that could be seen scientifically as a good thing because when an epidemic wanes and you keep testing more and more, you know, you will tend to see it in younger, younger people with less impact. But they seem to say this is a bad thing. And just back to Fauci briefly, Fauci came out the other day and I couldn't make this up. <laughs> uh, I have to pinch myself every day the past two months. But Fauci said maybe we should be wearing goggles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, so he's either being funny. I don't know the man personally. Maybe he's just really humorous. He's being sarcastic. <laughs> he's a troll. And the everyone. press are picking him up wrong. Jesus Christ. <laughs> is, there a, is there a danger to... Uh, you know, like I know some of the point of what they've been trying to do. It doesn't seem like it's making any difference, but uh, let's hypothetically say that it's lengthening the amount of time that the virus is around. Is there danger to that? And is that even something that's potentially happening because of uh, the lock the lockdowns in the beginning, the quarantine and so on? Well, yeah, I'd, there is potentially, theoretically. So the lockdowns didn't really do anything for Europe. And to your point earlier, they were done a bit late anyway, because the virus was around for months. But they, along with social distancing, may spread out the curve. And that'll just kind of spread it out to get into the winter, where human immune system function collapses a lot, particularly in susceptible people. So I would say, and the immunologists I've talked to is, once your death rate is down, your hospitals are no longer under pressure and the epidemic has waned and is no longer epidemic. And you're seeing younger and younger people. At that point, probably you're better off pulling back on all the measures while monitoring 
hospitals and course and everything uh, and allow more relatively harmless spread because this is never going away. It's endemic. And then maybe allow more cross immunity and immune reaction so that there's more herd immunity next winter to protect the old people. So even if the old people right now are protected and don't really get exposed, that's fine. Just make sure all the people who are relatively healthy can get it, become immune, and that will protect the older people come winter because people will not get it as much. So the logic would say when you've passed the epidemic, you know, allow safe spread, don't create a case-demic and have everyone panicking, allow safe spread, monitor the hospitals, monitor the ICUs, and continue like that with maximum reopening and maximum old normal within the limits of being careful, just in case something weird happens. That would be a logical crisis management. And I, I think, Mark, I always say to people, all over the world, they were 100% clear in their message. A few weeks of lockdown to make sure the hospitals are not overwhelmed. We achieved that in a couple of weeks in Europe. The curve turned and suddenly the story changed. Well, it became different. Now the hospitals are okay and people began to say, oh, lockdown's coming out. No. And eventually it got to the stage with no deaths where we all have to wear masks under pain of prison. Like, how do we get from just protect the hospitals to no life left behind under any circumstances and just let the economy and business mm. just flush down the toilet because all that matters now is coronavirus. It's also interesting I mean, because, you know, in the hospital, especially in the beginning, um, now at least they have some treatments that seem to be assisting, I guess, mm. but um, there's really nothing they can do at the hospital. So, you know, when I think about like, should we have locked down at all? I do think it makes it made sense in the beginning to me to maybe shut things down just for a little bit and say, what the hell is going on? Let's get some of the smartest people that we can. Let's collaborate about this. Let's figure out what's the best way to move forward, because I don't know what's happening. You know, there's this information coming from China. Seems like Italy's getting hit pretty hard. I would hate for that to happen to our country. You know, how do we, you know, how do we get together and how do we prevent this? But I know it's sad for people to think about people dying and people dying in large numbers and things like that. But sometimes that just happens in, in our, you know, it happens in our lifetime. There's war, there's tragedies, there's hurricanes, there's, uh, 9-11, there's all kinds of things where um, that are just horrible to think about. And so when I think about it, I'm like, as horrible as it might be to get through it, at least we would have got through it a lot faster. And I also think that we would have figured it out. I, I don't think that the hospitals would have been overrun. But, you know, I'm not a medical professional by any means. But what what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, America, I haven't looked as much into America as Europe because I have all the European data, but I've been asked a lot about America. So I've done a certain amount of analysis and I gave people examples just of logic. So Illinois in mid-March locked down and on March 22nd, it was a stay-at-home order, one of the most lockdown states in the US. And Florida was a sloppy lock, didn't lock down, got a lot of heat. And in April 3rd, did a kind of a lockdown. And at the time... Illinois was four times the death rate of Florida, a super lockdown versus next to nothing. And it was four times higher. So I was just trying to illustrate, look, lockdown might help a bit, but like 
it's not a matter of you're saving loads of lives. There's huge question marks around lockdown. Um, and then the deaths per million. Northeast America recently was around 1,100 deaths per million. Maybe it was 900. That's quite a lot, 0.1%. Uh, but the South of America, no one was talking about the Northeast because it had been through the curve and now there were very few deaths. But they were all talking about the South. But I was kind of telling people, look, the South is only at around 200 per million now. And I think Texas at the time was 150 per million. And they're getting two to three people dying per million people per day. So it seemed people didn't really, they weren't able to realize two people per million inhabitants dying per day. That doesn't sound like a huge amount, but that's the numbers. And uh, I don't think the authorities are giving that perspective. If you draw a graph of Northeast America mortality, it goes up in March and down in April. And the South, even in Texas and Florida, is just way lower mortality, but it did start rising. But it's rising in a Mexico-like hump that suits its region. But it's still only going to reach maybe a third or a quarter of the deaths per million as the northeast of America. But people might not be able to realize that. Look, all deaths are tragic. But imagine when we come out of this, we'll be four times less death per million Mm. than the northeast. And we've already been through the northeast and it's finished. I don't know if people know these numbers. I try to do little videos with the graphs, and I can send you a link or two on what I just described, two two two-minute videos on USA. And again, I don't want to judge USA. I don't want to really get involved in any politics, but just explaining the data to people so they can kind of get a picture. Uh, The graphs in all the newspapers. Is that okay? Yeah, Mm -hmm. sorry. The graphs in all the newspapers as an engineer, they showed the very worst graph format in order to scare people. There's no financial times. They are always choosing the data, the timeframes and the scales to make it look shocking. And that's what worries me. A stiff upper lip, old fashioned media 50 years ago would present some of the figures I'm talking about and put it in perspective. The modern media, no, it's a hysteria engine. And I think the 1957 or 68 flu that was much worse than this, no question about that whatsoever. It got page three on the newspapers down the bottom. I mean, Woodstock happened, you know, they went to the moon. People just accepted there was a bad flu and, and older people were getting hit pretty hard. But, but back then, the philosophy was you don't do lockdowns. You just take care of the ill and wash your hands and, and take reasonable measures. So things have changed. In 2020, it appears we can literally become utterly panic-stricken. With all due respect to the deceased, I don't think there'd be too many more or less regardless of what we did, sadly. I think the virome is extremely complex. It's pervasive. Brazil has COVID-2 in the sewage, human sewage, November 2019. It only rose in deaths in April May. So there's a whole question around dormancy too. And, you know, Italy had November 19, the sewage, but it shot up in March and would, down in April. Would we have so better results? Very, would we have better uh, results with testing our poop? <laughs> well, Massachusetts in April was finding a ton of COVID in the poop up in Boston. <laughs> right. And Massachusetts State. 
uh, or maybe it was March, it was March before things really got bad. Mm. And they were just saying, guys, we think this was all over the place. And it was, mm. you know, I, I think with a high transmissibility virus that was in the US and Europe in January, arguably back in December, November, it was flowing through the population. By the time lockdowns happened, it was just waiting to spike in its seasonal trigger of the virome. So I, I just think a lot of them are missing the point. They're, they're correlating lockdowns. They don't correlate. I think a lot of this was kind of predestined, um, but there's a huge belief that we can magically uh, affect it. So to your point, Mark, it's not disrespecting people who are deceased. People die. Viruses come and go. It's not our fault. It's the virus's fault. But the management of it, I think the cost benefit of what was done was kind of crazy. The damage, the starvation around the world, the economic damage, the suicides, the cancer diagnoses missed all over the world. Heart disease issues. Basically, everything was thrown down the trash because only Corona mattered. And I don't think that served humankind. And I don't think it saved lives. I think, in fact, the opposite. I think the long term overall suffering and debt will be much higher because of the way it was handled. You know, there's a lot of people in my life right now that continue to watch the news uh, that are extremely anxious and scared of everything that's being told to them. Because like you said, when you when you see graphs, they set things up so it looks extreme and scary. And it is a serious issue, but they make it look worse than it is. So if we can kind of have, I don't want to, I don't want you to make it short, but if we can have a bulletproof uh, point of what we should actually be paying attention to in terms of the percentages, the deaths, the cases, what should people actually put their eyes on and what should they maybe try to ignore? Right. Well, I would say deaths per million uh, population, which you can get on the web. And there's a website I can send a link to where you can get deaths per million for us states and also regions, Northeast, South, um, Midwest and West. And if you look at deaths per million graphs for those, you'll see what I described. You'll see that the South is rising, but I think it's already turning and it's much lower overall than Northeast. You'll get a perspective. And I'd say cases at this point are nearly meaningless because you can overtest and you can get a positive a month after you've recovered. What does that mean? So I'd say deaths per million. And in fairness, ICU rates uh, of utilization for COVID. Now, that's also a problem because uh, the ICU rates, if you go in now for another thing, but you've got COVID in the PCR, you're called a COVID case. And I've, it's been reported from America fairly authoritatively that if you break your leg and go in, you get a PCR test, you're a COVID hospitalization. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the data, you got to be, I say ICU, that's clearly COVID, but deaths per million is the real measure when you're in the hump or coming down the far side. Deaths per million, are they coming down? If they're coming down, that's the big deal. And overall deaths per million uh, in the figures for the areas of the country or the overall country. America's around 450 deaths per million. It'll probably finish this in the next month or two, maybe up to, you know, 600, bit like Europe. That's the way it's looking. Northeast, Midwest, kind of finished. South and West, long and low level, 
rising and I believe it's turning down now. Are we? Um, no, I, I don't know. That's not a single bullet, but yeah, yeah. deaths per million is the bullet. Got it. Perfect. Are we seeing anything from an economic standpoint, like socioeconomic standpoint and or race? Um, is there, you know, di- are different races contracting the virus and uh, maybe re- uh, reacting to it um, in a different way? Like, what are you, what are you seeing with that? Yeah, I've done a couple of interviews on race with uh, Asim Malhotra in England, the crusading cardiologist who's uh, Indian Asian, and a black doctor, Quadjo, uh, in Canada, and a couple others. And they're very concerned. So in England and America, I think it's around the same, maybe three times the risk, approximately, if you're black or uh, Indian type extraction. And some of it is socioeconomic in the sense that, yes, maybe poor, less metabolically healthy. Uh, related to social status. But in England, 19 out of the 20 doctors that died of COVID were black or Indian, Asian. Wow. So it's not just socioeconomic or lower, poorer food, lower money. It is kind of racial. And we do know that black people and Asians in the UK and America are profoundly low in vitamin D just because of a mismatch between uh, you know, UV exposure expected and what you're really getting on your skin in northern territories especially in march or april after the winter Mm. so yeah it's a i'd say it's a racial issue with vitamin d and poor metabolic health higher diabetes rates in asians they they pop out a little tummy quicker they get diabetic quicker they don't have as high a personal fat threshold to expand and Mm. stay non-diabetic so i'd say yeah this is a problem as far as the vitamin D is concerned, because like you mentioned that earlier in the podcast, obviously getting outside, but how, like how many eyes of eyes of vitamin D should be people be taking each day? Like 10,000, is there an upper limit to what you want to try to get in? Well, the toxicity is pretty established that if you're below around 30,000, there's no evidence from studies of toxic- toxicity a day, but 10,000 would be seen as the super safe limit. So some people like to take 50K and they, they think it's magic. I'm okay with that. But I'd say 10,000 is the upper bound reasonably, unless you're under a doctor's guidance and you're profoundly low and they're giving you super high dose. And four or 5,000 a day would be maintenance during the winter to not go low. Ideally, you get UV because the UV that gives you the vitamin D, it has two or three times the residence time for reasons they're not sure why. Mm. It also, the UV gives you nitric oxide, which is super important for vascular and other health. And actually, a lot of the correlations between vitamin D and good health may be related to extra sun exposure and higher nitric oxide you got. So I'd prefer to get my vitamin D high by getting healthy sun exposure or UV lamps like Sperty in America. Um, I'd also like to get my vitamin D high. There's other ways of getting your D high. And people don't realize this. If you're a bit diabetic and eating shit, right, and you suddenly go on a low-carb diet that's nutrient-dense, your vitamin D will shoot up in the coming months without taking any D or any sun. So vitamin D is a profound marker for for insulin resistance, for inflammatory disorders, for all of the problems that we'd be aware of. And if you actually fix those problems through another route, you know, by nutrient-dense diets, interval training, fasting, get your potassium, magnesium, you bring up your metabolic health. Guess what? Your D will go right up, even though you didn't take any pills or get much sun. 
So it's acting as a marker. So it's just a super marker in general, but I think it's an amazing one for COVID. Like I said, 10 times the risk of death if you're below 20 versus above 30. There's much weaker correlations with just heart disease and cancers. Mm. So COVID seems to be a very important one. And it's not just supplements. It's ideally sun, but it's super ideally nutrient-dense diet. Get your leptin and insulin resistance right down, and you'll join the above 30 club. That's the way I see it. Does the antibody test, uh, does that do anything for us? Like, does that give us, is that test uh, pretty effective? And what would it do for us? There's lots of different ones, but my big concern and the immunologists I've talked to around the world, Ireland has a 5% antibody positive. Sweden that's come through this and has de facto community immunity has only 7%. The world is saying, oh, look, they only have five. They only have seven. 95, 93% are are still exposed (laughs) if it came back. Uh, No, it's gone through the population. The epidemic's over, but only a small percentage of people who are de facto immune will show antibody. They're the people who went to the stage of antibody generation defenses. Often people who are more affected or got a higher viral load, or who are less healthy, go right back to that high-level immune response. But like I said, the tracing studies for people who are symptomatic with people in their buildings and houses, no masks, often three or four out of five people never got it, and they were mixing freely with a high oral virus. And this was seen in studies of flu transmission. So there's, there's an an immunity in the population, even at the level of your mucus layers, where you can just fight this off and never get near an antibody response, or T-cell could fight it off, never near an antibody response. So I think they're grossly underestimating the true practical immunity. And that's why I think it's become another tool of fear that I don't think is scientific at all. What, what other countries have made it through? You mentioned uh, Ireland and Sweden. It seems like they're done slash finished. And then what do you mean by that terminology that, that uh, they're done with the uh, epidemic? Well, most of Europe now, almost all of Europe has gone through their Gompertz curves. So Professor Michael Levitt, who I interviewed, Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, he worked all this out from the math, from the Chinese data back in February. And he saw that from the Chinese infection curve and and mortality, that it was never exponential and it curled over naturally, not necessarily to do with lockdowns. And then he looked at the Italian data. So basically for Northern Europe and the lotter regions and and Northern US, you've got this Gompertz curve that naturally happens. So when you're down the end of that, regardless of your measures, that's when I say you're out of it. So the comment from Professor Stadler at the end of the interview is, well, he said, I wish you all the best in Ireland, but in in Switzerland, we're finished with this. And that's from the vaccine pope, the Mm -hmm. top one top immunologist in the world, because he said we're finished with it until a winter resurgence, which is normal. And he said, in Ireland, you are, too, because in Switzerland, they had, I don't know, five or six hundred deaths per million. Ireland had three hundred and eighty you're pretty much there. It's gone through the population until next winter. And most of Europe is in that position. But, but unfortunately, I guess they're, they're, as he would call, immunity deniers. The only way you go through that classic curve, regardless of measures, and come into a tail 
it's when you're through it and you have de facto herd immunity, you know, until next season. I mean, it's elementary to him. Yeah. He just can't understand how his colleagues are denying fundamental T-cell mucosal cross immunity with prior coronavirus peptides. He says the whole lot is being denied on the television and, uh, and his immunology students who are now in careers and even colleagues, they say to him secretly, it's great you're coming out and explaining this. And he says, but why don't you? And he said, they answer me. We've got careers. The environment right now, you can't say it. So can you imagine that? I mean, that, that's not a conspiracy theory. That, he was laughing as he told me it. He finds it extraordinary that whatever's going on in the world, immunologists cannot be open on the science because there's a narrative for whatever reason and you can't knock the narrative <laughs> even by quoting like real science that you learned in college. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's unusual, right? Yeah. Real quick. I, I was curious about this because I remember um, back when the numbers of deaths were coming out a few months ago, uh, China, like there, there was a lot of deaths, a lot of deaths. And then the next day they had two. I was curious about the data from China. Is that data about deaths? Is it accurate? Like for them, like reporting it? Cause it seemed to be like here and then it immediately went down. Yeah. I'd say there are some question marks around Chinese data possibly, or it's possible. It's pretty accurate. Okay. Uh, Professor Levitt made the point. Well, okay. Everyone says the China data I used, you can't trust it. But he said, in principle, they would have had to have a time machine <laughs> because Italy data was the exact same curve shape. Oh. Now, the absolute data for different regions, maybe not. But his point was it mathematically followed the Gompertz curve, just like Italy did. And later, all the countries did. Okay. So they couldn't make up data that happens to accurately be what you should see. So the, it probably was accurate enough. But the Chinese data doesn't really matter now because we've got all of our own since March. So it doesn't really matter anymore in a way. Got it. When we factor in age, um, what does the actual death rate look like worldwide from a percentage standpoint? Oh, so the worldwide debt rates are, are very small because huge areas of the world have extremely low debt rates. So Europe has leveled off and kind of finished like I described earlier, what finished was not completely finished, but you're out of it until next winter. Um, Europe is around 400 per million or 0.04% is the population fatality rate after it's passed through. Mm. And the US is currently around similar, but it might be up to 500 per million now at a guess, but 0.05%. And Professor Levitt says that generally, from all the math, from all the data, around five or 600 per million people is kind of the average where you're kind of finished with it. And if you look into that, it's going to be average age over this in the high 70s or 80, and it'll be mostly comorbid. So most of that small percentage is being made up by aged and comorbid. Sure, there's middle-aged people. Sure, there's people in their 20s who may have leukemia, some other problem. You know, there's tragedies everywhere. But high, Boston, I always remember the pie chart. When they came through their curve, their pie chart showed average age 81 and 
they had, I think it was 98% with medical conditions. Mm. And I was kind of saying, look, no disrespect, but come on, guys. You know, we, we kind of know the picture. And the media just never, ever emphasized that. That was on the Boston government website. I got the, that data. Mm. I never saw any media ever covered the true demographic. Yeah, I think five and years. I wonder why. I think five years or so from now, uh, they're going to find out those numbers are probably even half of what you're saying just because of all the, uh, you know, it's, we're probably talking about 0.00 something percent, you know, it's, they're probably just keep, uh, fading away. Andrew, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. And what's funny is, um, there's definitely something going on with our, uh, this podcast in general, because now my camera that points at me just went out. Um, but yeah, I know. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation. And I can't wait to share this with my family. But one one thing that I just remember just totally like terrorized my mom was seeing uh, the trucks backing up to hospitals and body bags, you know, all that stuff. You know, like that's the one thing she points at and like gets the chills when she thinks about it. Was all of that propaganda? Yeah, well, I'm not sure they, there were pictures put out showing a, a person in an ICU and it turned out to be a dummy. Apparently that was true. And lots of media had pictures that they said were local, but they were actually a picture from Italy. Mm. So there was all kinds of kind of chicanery going on with photos. Uh, but I think it's a reality that if you have a bad flu spike and your hospitals are pressured, which they were in Italy and they were in New York, uh, you do occasionally use overspill facilities, and I guess they may use body bags. But the thing is, that's kind of a medical behind-the-scenes thing. I mean, you don't really see a loved one being cremated. It's probably not new. So I think... Huh? It's, prob- it's probably not new. You know, they probably have oh, had I, to I, do I, that I, before. There's nothing... Right. Exactly. But, but the media this time had locked their talons into this yeah. in Italy like never before. And there was hysteria building. So I think people saw a lot more than they normally would. So if you look across Europe and America, there's only pockets of overload. Uh, in general, the hospitals all handled it fine. And I'll give you an example. 2018 in England, there were big newspaper articles. People don't realize this in the UK. So they have around 50,000 dead with probably a lot of overcounting, to your point, Mark. Uh, but the UK were claiming 62,000 dead in headlines in 2018. Mm. And I was told by ER docs over there, they had overload in many hospitals because 18 was a bad flu season. But no one said anything and no one covered it. But this year, a lesser number dead, apparently. Um, and it's just wall-to-wall coverage. And they're getting the cameras in to the refrigeration facilities. And they're getting those cameras in everywhere. So I think it's not so much, it is propaganda, but it's not totally making things up. Propaganda is when you continually reinforce a narrative that we already know. And real investigative journalism is when you challenge a narrative and look for balance or potential other things. So we have propaganda because we have rammed down our throat what we already know constantly. We know it's like a bad flu season. You know, we know there's tragedies. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that was a professor of pathology. Dr. John Lee told me that definition in an interview with the same question. He said, yes, this is propaganda. And it started in March. 
Is there truth to uh, one of the reasons why in South Africa um, the coronavirus seems to be pretty low is because they've been taking the malaria drug hydroxychloroquine for um, a number of years? Um, is there any truth to that? Yeah, it's a possibility. And there's a lot of stuff around HCQ. There's a lot of evidence that suggests it's good when taken early. It's a hard one to answer, though, because I think Africa seasonally and regionally will have a longer, slower hump and less impact because of its area of the world. So it's hard to tie it to HCQ. I think there's some interesting things in HCQ. Switzerland, for instance, stopped using it for a few weeks. And the death rate shot up. It's mm. quite striking on the graph. And then they started using it again. And the death rate went back down a couple of weeks later with a lag. So there's that and many other associational studies that suggest it has efficacy. Um, but as you know, it's become so political. Yeah, I've heard that with uh, zinc and a Z-pack that it's actually uh, quite effective. But I guess, yeah, we won't know for quite some time. Yeah, I think it's it's such a hot debate that I'm kind of sta staying out of it because it's controversial enough for me to say what I'm saying to you about the real rates, you know, the real curves, whether or not to be a second wave. All of that is hot enough and all the math to make sure <laughs> we get it right. But getting into HCQ, you're into an absolute political minefield, it looks like. <laughs> hey, in wrapping things up here, uh, I would love to just kind of, uh, you know, bring up the fact that you made a documentary on helping people to reverse heart disease. And uh, thank you so much for producing that and, and getting that done, getting that made. I know it costs a lot of money to uh, to do things like that. So can you give us a little bit of uh, info on that movie? And I know that uh, more recently you also put out a new book, which helps people uh, live longer and be healthier. Yep. Hey, thanks, Mark. Yeah, really quickly then. Uh, the movie is extratimemovie.com, all one word, extratimemovie.com. And you'll get it there. And we follow 45 super sports stars from the 90s. And they're now in their late 50s. And we scan them all and we find uh, a whole load of them with massive heart disease risk. But the day before, their doctor said they were fine. Mm. So a couple of them actually had heart events afterwards and multiple bypass surgeries. Calcium uh, scan, so they were right? truly saved. Yeah, it was amazing. And one of our guys we follow, he's the hero. He has the 1200 calcium score which means wow. enormous disease and risk. Yeah. And we follow him for a year and we rescan him. And at the end of the movie, you see what he did. So if you can slow down the progression of the calcium or stop it, you don't really need to reverse it. Uh, you massively reduce your risk. So we had him on a uh, glucometer. He had to change his diet completely. He was getting huge glucose spikes, even though he wasn't overweight on certain foods. And Vitamin D, vitamin K2, you know, potassium and a series of other things, new types of exercise. He went on the full program. And let's just say at the end of the movie, when we rescan him, uh, He's doing <laughs> it's, a lot better. it's a good news story that's uplifting. And then you have a new book out as well. Yeah, I have the book that's out a, a while ago, Eat Rich, Live Long with De Dr. Jeffrey Gerber. Uh, Denver's diet doctor and um, we put a lot into it it's very comprehensive but it's easy reading it's got a ton of recipes from a professional chef in the middle and later in the book you get into the science if you want to go deeper and then the appendices you get the really deep stuff mm -hmm. so we've kind of 
phased it that you only need to go through the basics of what went wrong and what you need to do. Then you're into meal plans and recipes and all of that stuff. And then you can go on to the science. But we're just conscious not everyone wants to get into the science always. <laughs> are you uh, happy and excited to uh, be out of nutrition for at least a little period of time? Or are you kind of itching to dive back into it? Or are you still studying it at the moment? I'm studying at a background level. And we have a conference, an online seminar on with actually that doctor organized a quadjo from Canada, the ER doc. And that's on this Sunday. So that's all nutrition. I was in Vinnie Tortrich uh, giving a talk at his conference a couple of weeks ago, and I'm in Dr. Eric Berg's. So I'm kind of, I'm keeping it nudged forward. But because Corona has become such an enormous kind of threat to the world in terms of freedoms and, and our economy and, and the bad science that's going on, it's been very hard for me, honest, to let it go, Mark. So we're actually making a movie, the same people who made the heart disease movie, Donal O'Neill that I just talked about, we're actually making a movie on Corona. So it looks like we have funding and we have a production company in South Africa who've booked in to produce it. So I'll be doing a bit more Corona. (laughs) Awesome. I I can't thank you enough. I think that was uh, very, very informative. And I got to say that I really appreciate the way that you are just looking at the numbers. You're just looking at the facts and you're repeating those facts. And I know that, uh, you might get excited or frustrated here or there, but I think you're doing a great job of uh, really being a real journalist and really bringing us the uh, the information that's really, really needed. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you, Mark. And, and guys, yes, sir, uh, great to you. be here anytime. And I'll send you some links to some of the short videos that visually show you some of the figures I was talking about and graphs for people who are interested. Mm. I'm hoping I'm fat enough to be interviewed on your Fat Emperor show, too. (laughs) Hey, man, I put on a lot of weight in three months of lockdown, working seven days a week, sitting on my ass in this office. (laughs) Thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. Great. Yourselves, too. Bye now. Yes, thank you so much. See you later. See ya. Fantastic. I was dope. That was an awesome awesome interview. Yeah, he uh, he he crushed it. <clears throat> it's um, you know, and I I want to point out that you know everything that we shared. Obviously, people can have some different views and different opinions because sometimes some of these things come down to <clears throat> your your beliefs, right? And so, but the way that I'm seeing things unfold, I, I just can't help but think that uh, a lot of times we're being very irrational. I, I would have to say that. You know, if I was to if I was to grade myself on how well I'm doing in terms of uh, keeping myself like in a bubble, uh, you know, against uh, contracting a virus or even passing it on, um, I would give myself a three, <laughs> which, you know, you have to. You, so no other number, though, than a 10 would be effective, right? You would have to be a 10, you'd have to be a 10 out of 10. And then even then, uh, there's not anything, uh, you know, I hugged family members when I was in New Jersey. And um, I also have my own beliefs. I don't have a lot of fear over it. Um, I'm not concerned about it um, really at all. And I I have also made peace with the fact that someone that, that I know may get it. They may get very sick from it, and that could be uh, a possible reality. I, I've dealt with death several times over in my life, and 
I just maybe have a different view or perspective of it uh, than maybe most. But again, you know, you're entitled to, you know, believe whatever you want. People that wear masks and people that are uh, really trying to distance themselves or people that are concerned, I'm not going to I'm not going to bother to try to place a lot of judgment on that. I just think that it is important that we try to come to a more rational uh, discussion when it comes to these things. Is it possible that a lot of the things that we're doing aren't effective? It appears so. I hate seeing the United States blamed for so many things. I'm not all that patriotic, but it is annoying and frustrating to see that the people of America keep getting blamed. Well, there's the people in Florida who aren't wearing their mask. Oh, what about the people on Mm -hmm. the beach? And what about this? I'm seeing a lot of people still follow the rules, right? But again, we're halfway like out. We're halfway quarantined. There seems to be quite a bit of confusion. I mean, it's not confusing to wear a mask. It's not confusing to stay 10 feet away. However, do you wear a mask inside your home? Do you not get close to anybody? Um, what about if somebody comes to your house and fixes something at your home? What's, what's the, what do you do with that? And what do you do with the 27 people that that guy worked for over the last three weeks? Right. And, uh, just, it, it just goes, the list goes on and on. What about the money in your pocket? What about the dollars and the how many people have that been touched by? I mean, hygiene and trying to figure all this out is uh, is very, very difficult. And I so rather than getting spurred up about it and fired up about it, I'd love to keep figuring out a way to try to get closer to the truth. And I think that that podcast right there uh, was really helpful. It did a lot of good also in terms of squashing fear. Yeah. He's like mm-hmm. he said, as far as the news is concerned, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors to get people to pay attention to different things. A lot of graphs that are tailored to look scary and look extreme. It's affecting a lot of my family members, especially my mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, all, all your these... mom probably couldn't be healthier either. right? <laughs> exactly. Like she's she's pretty she's jacked. The, you said, right? She's pretty <laughs> jacked. And she's the last person that I would like if my, if she got it, I honestly would not be worried. I really wouldn't be worried. Um, but that's the thing. It's just like it, there's so much being thrown at people to give to get them anxious get them scared all these you know the who the professionals are all saying do this it's like you know if you don't are you going to kill somebody on accident are you going to you're going to uh, you know get are you going to get it and and pass away it scares people but i like how he clarified everything he made you know he the uh deaths per million that's a very good way or a very good way to go on on looking at it and it makes you understand oh it's really not that bad so yeah and the the title of this uh episode is going to be uh the case demic i thought that was the the biggest and best thing because I, I hadn't even really paid attention I, I don't watch the news but like as far as like the narrative like it did go from deaths to cases all of a sudden mm-hmm. and i didn't really pay attention to that but when he said it, i'm like oh my gosh he's totally right and if you go to google and you type in uh i forgot what it was but like new cases or something like that mm-hmm. in any number of uh, three digits or like new cases and you type in any three numbers it will pull up an article from wherever in the country and will show like new hampshire blah blah, blah 347 new cases mm-hmm. you type in another random number and it will pull up an article saying that in this town there are x amount of new cases and that just blew me away and i, I think that um yeah, with this episode, people are going to realize that and it will squash some of the, the fear. So I'm excited to put this one out. 
Yeah, this is a shareable one, right? Like, Absolutely, hey, yes. You know, check this out. I, you know, I think Jordan Syatt, uh said it best when he was here, and he said a retweet is an I told you so. He's like, it's the ultimate example of I told you so, you know, and I True. think yeah. that this is obviously like falling into a lot of my, mm-hmm. a lot of my uh, beliefs and biases, but uh, fuck it, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and while we're at it, just real quick, like I'll lean on people that are listening and watching this. Uh, if you need an I told you so for somebody, Put it in the comments and I'll make that for you. (laughs) And then you can share that with whoever the hell you want. But yeah, let's put out a bunch of I told you so's. You know, in this situation, it's funny to say. Trump was right because you remember when when all the testing started happening, like the guy was consistently saying, hey, we have more tests. We're going to have more cases. We have more tests. Mm-hmm. We're going to have more cases. And then for a while, the media was and they like, asked really? him again. And he was like, yes, that's what happens when you test more. There's you get be. more cases. <laughs> and everyone was like, no, that's not right. There's more. Trump was right. Yeah. China. One thing is, you know, I, I would love to see our government. Um, I'd love to see our government like review this information. Like why I just, I just, um, I'm having a hard time understanding um, if they do have, if they, if they do have a plan, I just don't know what it is. You know, it's hard. It's hard to know what the plan is. What he mentioned about Belarus, I think was amazing where the guy got everybody together and he mm-hmm. was like, all right, here, we're going to explain all this. And if we need to, if I'm wrong, uh, I'll admit that I'm wrong and we'll talk about it then. But we're going to go on like this. And unfortunately, not from our president or not from our governors. And it just hasn't come from anywhere. Hasn't mm-hmm. come from anybody that's able to really do anything about it. You know, it, it, it's come from retired people that we've had on the podcast that can now, uh, you know, kind of say say whatever they need to say and say whatever they want. But, um, yeah, anyway, amazing having uh, Ivor on the show today, uh, really punching holes in this thing. But I really want to strongly advise people to please go check out his YouTube channel. Mm. He's got a ton of great information. Check out his podcast. Um, I know that the information from him is very thick. It's not easy to hear him talk about the different uh, things that he talks about. But when it comes to... Um, heart disease and I mean he's really uh, he he's on the forefront of a lot of it you know some of it is said easier or said uh, in a um, much e- easier to digest tone from like a, someone like a Stan Efforting but guys like Stan Efforting a lot of people that are going out doing seminars and preaching a lot of knowledge uh, about nutrition are getting information straight from uh, people like Ivor Cummins so I got the utmost respect for him it was amazing having him on the show yeah. the fat emperor what a great name fat emperor why didn't I think of that <laughs> <laughs> should have man yep. yeah that was fantastic all right, want to take us on out of here, Mr. Andrew? I will. And sorry, I can't put the camera on my ugly face because it went down. Hey, so that's cute. amazing. Don't be saying that. I know. I shaved today, too. You're real cute. I got mm-hmm. it cleaned up. It was getting mm-hmm. a little... Anyways. Uh, seriously, though, I think this is probably the best conversation we've had when it comes to coronavirus and everything. So I personally am going to share this with... Uh, uh, it's going to be hard for me not to share it with somebody. Send so, it to Dr. Batar. <laughs> <laughs> You can definitely, yeah, we can do that actually. Uh, But anyway, so yeah, if you guys found this information helpful, especially uh, just trying to squash some of the fear, please share this with friends and family because there's somebody that you know that needs to hear the whole conversation. And uh, and again, like I said, if you want a simple, quick, like one minute clip or whatever it is of a I told you so, 
let us know. Uh, do it via the, the comments here on YouTube and Facebook. Um, if you're listening to this on iTunes, we're super easily accessible. Uh, please reach out to at uh, Mark Bell's Power Project on Instagram, at MB Power Project on Twitter. And like I said, we're on YouTube, Facebook, and even LinkedIn. Uh, my Instagram is at I am Andrew Z. And Sima, where you be? And Sima Yin Yang on Instagram and YouTube. And Sima Yin Yang on TikTok and on Twitter. Oh, Mark. And, and, yeah, Instagram's just they came out with Instagram Reels. Reels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, see ya. I'm taking a picture TikTok. of Cena's hat. I'm taking a picture of you. Oh, oh. God, Flexa. There you, you go. Keep, you keep knocking him down, bro, and like, I'm just gonna send him that. See what he thinks about this. This is, uh, <laughs> unfair. <laughs> so he's holding a lot of weight, and you're not, I mean, that's the second podcast in a row that you've knocked him down. <laughs> yeah, and those are 75, 75 pound plates. 75 pound plates, bro. When I first saw that, we're talking about the John Cena doll that's on our, uh, it's on our, it's an action pod- figure, action it's not figure. a doll, action figure that's on our uh, table. And I immediately called him out and called him a fraud. So I'm like, they've, no one's ever made 75 pound plates, but I think someone probably actually did at one point, which is even funnier. I've seen a 50 pound plate before. Mm-hmm. The old standard ones, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is makes your math all weird how do you add that up you start getting really confused i mean it should have been in 50s like the bar should have been 50 mm-hmm. everything should have been 50 but because it's converted to kilos we got killed and we don't know what we're doing nope <laughs> it's hard to add it all up <laughs> anyway i'm at mark smelly bell strength is never weakness weakness is never strength catch you all later bye